Don. So anybody ready to go run a marathon <laughs> after last week? Had a bunch of people after, um, afterwards down there were saying, you definitely cured me of ever wanting to do that um, in my lifetime. So uh, anyhow, it was funny. I don't know if any of y'all were aware of it or not, but at one point, this never happened to me in my life, but at one point we were down there, I just had lunch. I was standing around talking to one of our church members, and all of a sudden I got white in the face, like, and I had to sit down. And she's like, see, I told you you shouldn't be running all those, <laughs> all those marathons. But anyhow, um, we'll figure that out with the doctor next week. Um, today we are starting a new series called Vision 2020. We want to look toward next year over the course of the coming months as a church family. This is going to include folks getting together in homes uh, during the week, perhaps on Sunday evening, some folks here on Sunday morning during Sunday school, and talking about a curriculum which I'm building and we'll be handing out to those folks that are leading those groups. Um, so I'm, look, I'm excited about the coming months. Today, I thought it would be appropriate for us, uh, today and over the couple, next couple of weeks, to look backward before we look forward, to think about, well, where have we come from? What are we built on? Um, what's the heritage on which this church, Hebrew Christian Church, rests? And how might that inform us as we begin to look ahead? Um, so I want to teach you a little bit about the history of what's called the Restoration Movement. I'll explain some of that a little bit later, to which this church belongs. Um, I was reading an article this week, um, and it was written by the World and Christian Encyclopedia. And in the World Christian Encyclopedia, it said that there are over 33,000 Protestant denominations worldwide. 33,000. About, wrap your head around that for a second. 33,000 Protestant denominations worldwide. And I thought to myself, that doesn't sound right. I mean, surely Christians can get along a little bit better than 33,000 Protestant denominations. Um, and so I did a little bit of hunting on that and come to find out that the World Christian Encyclopedia, when they came up with their number 33,000, well, they did some, some, uh, some maneuvering with some of the numbers. And here's how they got to the number 33,000 Protestant denominations. What they did was, if you're a Presbyterian in America, and say you're a Presbyterian in, in Australia, somebody else is a Presbyterian in Australia, well, even though those two Presbyterians are flying under the same denominational flag of being a Presbyterian, they said, well, because you're in this country, and those folks are in another country, we're going to consider those as two separate denominations. Well, there's 238 countries in the world where, where there are churches uh, of Christ, where there are Christian churches in the world. So you take 238 countries in the world, and you start dividing up all the Presbyterians among them, then you count the Methodists, you count the Baptists, you count the Episcopalians, you count the Anglicans, and all of a sudden that number starts to explode, numbers of Protestant churches. Another thing that they did, which was particularly egregious, was they took all of the independent Baptist churches across the world and said each one of those independent Baptist churches, whether they had 10 people at some little church down the road or they had 300 people at some other church down the road, but every one of those independent Baptist churches, and they counted every single one of them as its own denomination. There are over 8,000 independent Baptist churches worldwide. So again, you throw that number into the 33,000, you throw the 238 countries divided up all these denominations across the world, and all of a sudden that number starts to really inflate and really is not representative of the numbers of Protestant churches that there are worldwide. In fact, the number of Protestant denominations that there are worldwide numbers somewhere around 200 or maybe just a little bit north of 200. So 200 Protestant denominations worldwide. Um, the question that we want to talk about today is this concept of unity. That's why I raise this issue. 
Um, and so you may be wondering, you know, why does that, why, why do the Protestant denominations in the world even matter? Well, again, it goes to this issue of unity, and it's something that Jesus prayed for. It's something that Jesus wanted to see accomplished in his church amongst Christians, the unity of all of his followers. Um, Let's take a look at our text for today. It comes from John chapter 17, from the Gospel of John chapter 17. We'll be reading verses 20 through 23. And let me give you just a little bit of background real quick. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's been praying over the course of a couple chapters here. And this comes to the end of his praying, and he turns his attention not to praying for his disciples, not praying for himself or what's coming up, but now he begins to pray for uh, his followers, for those who would believe. So let's stand together to our feet, as is our tradition here, Stand for the reading of God's word. We're reading John chapter 17, verses 20 through 23. Again, this is one of the things that Jesus prayed for there right before he would go to the cross. Here we go, beginning at verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. You may be seated. Now that was a tongue twister, was it not? Um, I've read over that. I can't tell you how many times over the course of this past week, so it rolled off my tongue a little bit easier. But for y'all, hitting that a little bit cold, hitting that a little bit fresh, it probably was kind of like, what in the world is Jesus talking about here? So what we want to do is to walk through those verses so we can get a clear understanding of what exactly it is that Jesus is praying for. Um, look at verse 20 with me. It says, Jesus says, I do not ask for these only. Now, the these that he just mentioned were those that he had been praying for before. It was the disciples. So he said, I'm not just praying for the disciples, for these only, he says. But, I, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is, the disciples are going to go out. They're going to teach this thing called the gospel. They're going to tell people about the forgiveness of their sins through the blood that Jesus shed on the cross and how they can go to heaven if they accept what Jesus did on the cross for their sins, as a penalty for their sins. And so if people, when they go out and they do that and people respond to that positively, they accept the teachings of, the, of these, of the disciples, then those folks will, Jesus is saying, that's who I'm praying for here now. So I'm praying for anybody who would become one of my followers. And what is it that Jesus wants to see happen in us? Um, he says, verse 21, that these future Christians may all be what? You saw it on the screen, that they all may all be one, right? That they might come together in some form of unity. And so I thought to myself as I was studying this past week, well, what does Jesus mean when he says he wants for us all to be one? Is he talking about that we would have some sort of uniformity, that we'd have some sort of sameness, that we would all come together in some sort of a cookie-cutter version of himself or maybe cookie-cutter versions of one another? Is that what Jesus means when he says that he wants for us to be one? And the answer to that is unequivocally no. Paul writes over in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul celebrates the diversity amongst the body of Christ that we're not all to be cookie-cutter versions. He says, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, Now you, the Christians, are the body of Christ, and individually you are members of it. Now you, the Christians, are the—I'm sorry. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles. He's listing off a whole bunch of roles that people will play out in the church. He says some will be good at helping, some will be good at administrating— and various kinds of tongues. So right there, Paul says that not everybody is supposed to be a cookie-cutter version of one another. You follow me? Everybody with me? Okay, so that's what that verse is telling us, uh, that we have different skill sets, that we have different God-given talents that God put into us. He designed us uniquely, individually, so that when we come together, we complement one another, and that, that that union becomes one, that union becomes a stronger whole. 
nor is Jesus praying for us to be one in our methods. That is, Jesus had no anticipation when he was praying this prayer that every church that gathers together would sing the same song, or that we'd follow the same order of worship, or that we would use the same curriculum materials in our Sunday school classes, or that we would follow the same sermon series on Sunday mornings. Jesus had no, no intention, as he's praying for us to be one, that we'd be method, methodologically, that was a big word, that we would use the same methods in our form of communication, in our form of teaching. Um, again, what does Jesus mean when he prays for us to be one? Does it mean that there's supposed to be one denomination? That we're supposed to erase all these 200-plus denominational lines between Protestants? That we're supposed to erase all the lines between Catholics, between Greek Orthodox, between Eastern Orthodox churches, and that we're supposed to smush all that together, and we're supposed to be under one governance, and that all of these things are supposed to be one and in an organizational system. Is that what Jesus was praying and yearning for? And again, the answer is a resounding no. Jesus is the head of the church, not some human entity that is the head of the church. And it's on this basis that Paul went out and planted churches all across Asia Minor. It's on this basis that uh, that Thomas and Bartholomew went to India and went to what was now today Pakistan and planted churches at the far reaches of the known world. It's, to, it's on this basis that Christ is the head of the church, not some human entity, not some governance, that Christ is the head of this church, that Matthew went down into Ethiopia and shared the gospel there and how people came to faith in Christ. And those churches are still functioning churches today and sharing the gospel with people in the northern parts of Africa. Jesus was not praying for a unified system of governance Anybody that wants to come out and preach that, hey, look, the church is supposed to be ecumenical, the church is supposed to come together, we're going to smush all the denominations. Friends, that church, that person is not, and I'm not expressing what Jesus was praying for here in this verse. You say, well, what is it then that Jesus is praying for? What does he mean when he wants for us all to be one? Well, he tells us right there in the verse. Look again at verse 21. Um, he says that this oneness that we have should resemble how you, Father, are in me, just as you're in me, and it should resemble how I am in you. So Jesus wants for our oneness to be modeled after, to reflect the kind of relationship that exists between God the Father and God the Son. That he wants our oneness to reflect the kind of, uh, of relationship, the kind of the way that they relate to one another within the Godhead, within the Trinity. You say, well, what does their unity look like? Well, a couple of things. Number one is Jesus is submitted to the will of the Father. Earlier in this same prayer, it's talked about in one of the other Gospels, in Luke chapter 22 and verse 42, Jesus says, hey, look, let me tell you about my submission to the Father. He's having a tough time, he's thinking about the cross, he's seen men go to the cross, he's thinking about the pain of the cross, and so he prays to the Father, he says, Luke 22 and verse 42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Friends, this is awfully similar to what Jesus had taught his followers to pray in Matthew chapter nine, 6 and verse 9. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Jesus is praying for the Father's will to be done. So the unity of the Trinity, the unity that Jesus has to his relationship to the Father in heaven, that, that unity looks like he is submitted to whatever the Father wants, whatever the Father's will is. Friends, when it came down to it, Jesus was submitted to the will of the Father. He didn't have competing agendas. He didn't have conflicting plans. He didn't have, hey, look, this is my way. This is your way. Maybe we can compromise and figure out something that, that walks down the middle. Jesus shared the Father's vision for his life, and he was joyfully submitted to it. Not my will, but yours be done. Friends, you can consolidate all the denominations in the world, 
But what you will end up with is unity in name only. Until the hearts of the people in those churches are individually submitted to the will of the Father, until that happens, you won't have true and real unity. Second, number two, a second form of unity that we see between God the Father and God the Son is a spirit of mutual love and peace. Jesus and the Father loved one another. Jesus liked nothing more than to go and get out into a quiet space and spend some time alone with the Father. It was a peaceful place for him. When he got in quiet before the Father, it was a place where he would be refreshed in his spirit. And so the Lord Jesus regularly sought an audience with his heavenly Father. Friends, if, we, if Jesus wanted our unity to be modeled after Trinitarian relationship, right, how the Father and the Son re- respond and relate to one another and how the Holy Spirit relates, then that means we should have mutual love and live in peace with one another. In several of Paul's letters, he prayed for this kind of unity in the churches. He writes to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 2. He said, treat one another with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Friends, doesn't that sound like the kind of love, the kind of mutual love and peace that exists between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit? Verse 3, Paul writes, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. To the church in Philippi, Paul wrote, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing, he said, verse 3, from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but with humility regard other people as better than yourself. Let me sum all this up. Jesus prayed for unity in the garden. It was one, it, and it should be noted that this was the last thing that he prayed right before Judas would come walking down the path. This was a dominant thing on Jesus' mind uh, before he would go to the cross. I mean, he has all the the passion of the cross ahead of him. He knows all the pain and the suffering that he's going to experience. And yet he's praying for you and he's praying for me that we would be united. And so to sum all this up, the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for was not a unity that looked like uniformity, making everybody the same. Nor was the unity that Jesus prayed for to be methodological, he never had in mind that all the churches would worship the same and sing the same or, or anything to that effect. Third, Jesus' prayer for unity was not a prayer for organizational unity. Jesus had no intention that there would be some worldwide governance that would, that would, would run all of the believers or, or that all the believers would report to and answer to. So what was the unity Jesus prayed for? It was the, it was the unity that would reflect the kind of unity that exists within the Godhead the kind of unity that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And number one, that looks like being submitted to the will of the Father. And number two, that we would have mutual love and peace for one another. That is what Jesus prayed for. Again, it was the last thing he prayed for right before he would go to the cross. Um, I'd like to shift gears for a moment and begin uh, today, and we'll do more of this in the coming weeks, teaching about the history or the heritage of our church. Of the, of the restoration movement of which we are a part. Um, I want to do a little bit of background first before I get to the history lesson. Um, and I want to take you back to 1519. Did you know that we celebrated 500 years since Martin Luther packed his 99 theses on the door of the Catholic Church there in his local um, parish, in his local community? Um, and those 99 theses were his criticisms of the then, and I say then intentionally, the then Catholic Church and its leaders. When he did this, a bunch of people who um, were fed up with the corruption of the then Catholic Church left the Catholic Church and started their own churches. And these rebel congregations were given the name 
right? There's lots of different rebel congregations out there in, after 1519. And these rebel con congregations were given the overarching name of Protestants because they were protesting, right? There's your little, uh, what do you call that when you're like, etymology? Isn't that, the, isn't that the study of words? All right, so there's your little uh, explanation of where the word comes from, the root of the word. So the word Protestant comes from the idea that they were protesting the Catholic Church. And so anybody that was protesting or rebelling against the Catholic Church and wanted to start their own thing, they just were given the name Protestant churches. Um, so across Europe, what's happening in the late 1500s, 1600s, are this pop-up of all of these protesting churches, of all these new denominations. Um, and so they called them the Protestant churches. Names like the Baptists, names like the Presbyterians, the Moravians, the Anglicans, uh, the Puritans. There were dozens and dozens of these new organizational structures that existed apart from the Catholic Church. When these folks came to the New World, many of them settled areas together, colonies like the Virginia colony, colonies like the Carolinas. But what ended up happening is that when they came to the New World, they splintered even further. And so you had groups like the Quakers that showed up, and then the Shakers that showed up, and they were called the Shakers because when they get together for worship, they literally shook. And so people called them the Shakers. And then you had the, uh, the Congregationalists, and you had the Anabaptists. And so there's all this splintering going on in the New World, and people were hopeful that when folks would come to the New World that actually there would be the smushing, right? That all the, all the Christians would come together, but instead what ended up happening was things fractured even further. Well, you can imagine when you've got all this fracturing going on, that the culture of that day amongst Christians became very sectarian. And so Baptists really didn't want to talk to Methodists, and Presbyterians didn't want to have any conversation with Congregationalists. And so we will say, hey, look, this area is our area. We're the Puritans. We run the Massachusetts Bay Colony area. And so we don't want any of you outsiders, any of you non-Puritans living here. And so they set rules in place to try and <clears throat> make it difficult for a Congregationalist to live in Massachusetts Bay Puritan territory. And so one of the rules that they put in place was you're not allowed to kiss your wife in public on a Sunday. You're like, what? I mean, where's that in the Bible, right? But again, this is one of their Puritan ideas, this idea that, oh, it'd be shameful for you to kiss your wife in public on a Sunday. And so if a guy, and this is an actual story that happened, a guy came back from a three-year voyage, had been off doing who knows what, trading stuff, picking up stuff, bringing it here and there. He came back from a three-year voyage, hadn't seen his wife in three years. He got off the boat, kissed his wife on a Sunday, and they threw him in the stocks for two hours. Um, and so this kind of stuff is going on between all of the different denominations, and there's just lots of, uh, lots of infighting and lots of outfighting um, and the sectarianism happening. And so things had gotten quite militant by the time you get to the 1700s between denominations. Um, George Whitfield, the famous, uh, oh, no, hold on, before I get to him, I'm going to quote you from Henry, uh, Henry Webb. He's a church historian who writes, that preachers often spent more time, things have gotten so bad between denominations that here's what they did. He says, preachers often spent more time seeking to convert people from other denominations than they did trying to convert unbelievers to Christ. That's how bad things have gotten. George Whitfield, the famous evangelist who had led tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people to Christ during the Great Awakening here in America, said of all the sectarianism, of all the outfighting amongst uh, denominations, he said, one time, he said, Father, standing in front of a crowd, he said, Father Abraham, who have you in heaven? And Abraham responded, he asked, any Episcopalians? And Father Abraham answered back, no, we don't have any Episcopalians here. He said, do you have any Methodists, seceders, or independents? No, no, we don't have any of those here. And he said, well, why don't you have any, have any of those there? Well, we don't know those names here in heaven. All who are here are Christians. Oh, 
Is that the case? Then God help me and God help us all to forget party names and to become Christians in deed and truth. End of quote. Around 1801, two men stepped out of the scene in America into the frontier into places like Kentucky and Indiana and Ohio and western Pennsylvania, and they began to see all this disunity that was taking place amongst Christians. Even though they were in different denominations, they still followed the same Lord. They still listened to and followed the same Bible. And so there was a response amongst these Christians where they're fighting with one another. And these two guys, a guy by the name of Alexander Campbell and another guy by the name of Barton Stone, and they saw all this disunity and they said, you know what, we need to do something to bring this together. And so one of the things they wanted to do was to stop or try and help people to stop thinking about what they had that was different and start thinking about what is it that we have that's in common. I got a picture of those two guys here for you. You can see Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell. They're the leaders of what would become the Restoration Movement. Now, shift gears to where we're our, our 21st century today, where all this is leading. Um, when I moved to South Georgia years ago and lived down there, I was a youth pastor in South Georgia for a little while. When I moved to South Georgia, there was a truism that I noted in any town that I went to in South Georgia, and that was that the largest church in town was always what church? The Baptist church. The second largest church in any town in South Georgia was the Methodist church. And the same is sort of true if you go outside of Atlanta here around in North Georgia as well. And so I noted that truism, and I thought to myself, well, there's a, that's something interesting. Uh, but if you drive up to Kentucky, where I have lived, the largest church in every town in Kentucky is what's called a Christian church. And you say, well, yeah, I mean, they're Christian churches, right? Well, no, actually, there's something a little bit more going on there. And the largest church in, in, in a lot of the towns in Indiana, same thing. And the largest church in a lot of towns in Ohio, same thing. Um, you see, we are Hebron Christian Church. That's the name on the sign out there. But if you were to drive out to Highway 53, you'd see Midway Christian Church. And if you drive out on Highway 78, if you're heading toward Monroe on, uh, at Mount Vernon, you'd see Mount Vernon Christian Church. If you were to drive into Watkinsville and right across the street from Oconee High School, it's what's called Union Christian Church. If you were to drive the south end of Oconee County, you would run into a church called Antioch Christian Church. And so you have this phrase, Christian Church, in the title of all of these churches. And what it is, is all of these churches around this area are tied to those two guys, Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, and their desire to bring Christians together, um, not under Baptist or, or Methodist or whatever, uh, but under the single name, a Christian church. Um, now, some, uh, and I think it's worth noting here at this point, uh, some church historians have said that the Restoration Movement churches who were trying to restore and bring unity back together amongst the churches that Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, these two guys, really wanted to smush all of the Protestant denominations under one church governance. And friends, that's just simply not true. There's some church historians that will say that, but I want to quote you here what Alexander Campbell actually said about the smushing of denominations. And uh, here's what he said. It came from an article he wrote called A Restoration of the Ancient Order of Things. He wrote, I have no idea, not even thinking about, of seeing, nor, would, nor one wish to see, the sects or the denominations Unite in one grand army. I don't want to see everybody come together under one title on the sign out front. He said, this would be dangerous to our liberties and laws, for this the Savior did not pray. Jesus was not praying in the garden, as we already said, for all the denominations to come together under one organizational structure. That's not what Jesus had in mind. Again, what is it that Jesus had in mind? He prayed that we would all be one and that our oneness would reflect the kind of unity that exists in the Trinity that would exist between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that looks like that we are submitted 
to the will of the Father, that there's one will in your life and mine. And that's what God wants to do, and that we don't stamp our feet and fuss about it when God tells us what we're supposed to do, but that we just say, not my will, let yours be done. And that we would have mutual love and mutual peace toward one another and how we relate toward one another. Okay, well, that's our treatment. That's your history lesson for today. And so that means it's time for us to ask our most important question. What difference does all this make in my life? Say, Gordon, it's raining outside. I'm wondering if, uh, if, if, I, if, I, if I put the plants out or if I should have put them in. I got school starting later this week. I mean, I appreciate the history lesson, but what difference does any of this make to me? How does this impact my life today? Well, that's a really great question, and let me briefly see if I can answer that. You know, you're very right that the Baptists and the Methodists do get along a lot better these days. Uh, if you've ever, you know, go to a church conference or something like that, where there's people coming from all different kinds of denominations, and you'll meet people from, I mean, every single stripe and, and background across the whole gamut of all the Protestant churches, um, and they're all gathered together, collaborating, sharing ideas, um, and, and doing church a lot the same, more and more so these days. And that's a good thing. Again, it's part of what Jesus uh, would have liked to have seen, that kind of unity. But Jesus tells us in that prayer why it is so important that we be one, why it is so important that we be united. So look back with me again at John 17, verse 21. Jesus said that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that, key word, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that, key word, so that, for the purpose of, becoming one for the purpose of, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. Jesus says, part of the reason why I'm praying for this unity is because when the world sees this unity, it will be drawn to it. When the world sees believers in local churches mutually loving one another, living in peace with one another, supporting one another, uh, uh, comforting one another, when the church sees that genuine community taking place, they're going to want to be drawn to it. They're going to want to be a part of that. When the church sees people coming together according to the will of the Father, that we're not just a bunch of people out here independently doing our thing and thinking how we know how it ought to go, but rather we're listening to what God wants for us and for our churches, and that we submit ourselves to that, the church again will be drawn to that. In other words, if you want to reach the world for Christ, let us be united in Christ as Christians ourselves. Some of you may know that my mom had knee replacement surgery just a couple days, weeks ago, 10 days, two weeks ago, I can't remember exactly. Um, but I went by to see her yesterday, and she's recovering very nicely. Thank you very much. Uh, she pulled out this, when I was over there, she pulled out this big giant gallon, uh, uh, what do you call them, Ziploc bag, right, clear bag. Um, and she had been tossing cards in there. And the cards were from, I mean, some of them were people back in home, back in Delaware. Uh, but some of, many of them were from y'all, um, from people here at this church. And so she was pulling the cards. I said, well, let me see that. So I was pulling them out, and I was looking through it. And I was seeing all the folks that had sent her some cards. And so she was just so grateful. My dad was so grateful that they had been remembered. They were so grateful that they had been loved by this congregation. I mean, they only been here for a couple of years. Their health's really not that good. They've not been able to plug into some of the small groups or Sunday school classes, but still they felt the love of this church and this congregation, and it meant so much to them. Friends, Jesus says that that's the kind of witness that a watching world will respond to. Um, again, we're in a, the front end of a series that's going to last all the way into November. 
where we're talking about and beginning the conversation about what does God want to see accomplished through this church in the youth group of Hebron Christian Church? What does God want to see accomplished through the adults and through the children's ministry of Hebron Christian Church in the year 2020 and moving forward? And so we're beginning to ask those questions over the course of the next couple months. God, what is your will? Make it clear to us so that we can submit to it and get busy executing on it. And so my ask of you here at the front end of this in week one of the series is would you agree to be open, to open your heart to the possibilities that are before us, to ask God what his will is for Hebron Christian Church, not to go to that question loaded with, well, God, this is what I think it ought to be, but rather to go to him like Jesus did in the garden to just say, hey, look, Lord, some things I understand, some things I don't. But if you'll communicate it clearly to me what it is that you want, I'll respond obediently. Not my will, but yours be done. I'm ready to submit ourselves to him. Will you begin thinking like that? Will you begin positioning your heart and your mind to listen for God's voice? Because I'm not, I'm not going to stand up here in front of you and say, this is the will of God. I'm not going to stand up here in front of you and carve this thing out for us. But I'm excited for us as a church family to realize what God's will is and then get busy living in it. Amen? Wouldn't that be exciting for the coming year? Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, that you love us. We thank you that you have such a wonderful relationship within the Godhead. And it's one that you believe can be... uh, can be modeled, can be lived out in our lives as well. Lord Jesus, we thank you for praying for us. Uh, You knew human nature. You knew how things were going to go. And uh, Lord, you know we need your help. And so we thank you, Jesus, for continuing to intercede on our behalf with these prayers for the unity of the body of Christ. Lord, as we begin these steps forward, small and then larger, in the coming months, as we ask these questions as a church family, what is your will? Lord, we just ask that you would uh, make our hearts pliable. As we receive this communion today, may we just say to you, yes, Lord. I'm just going to be open to you here at the front end of all of this. And I'm going to go where you lead. I'm going to follow your direction. And so, Lord, it is to that that we commit ourselves we pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.